Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. And we're back in the studio. These weeks really roll by, particularly during our busy season. And last week, we joked around that it was cold and flu season. And uh uh-oh, I think my partner here either has a bad cold or the flu or maybe something worse. Thank you so much for attempting to come into the studio. (laughs) If you have a paroxysm of cough, I guess I'm going to be doing this show alone. I know. I know. I was so worried on the way over. I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to contain this coughing fit as it happens. It's a deep breath, but I heard you had a good weekend. You had a family reunion. I did. We had, we had a great weekend. My, all the women in my, I grew up in a, I grew up in a very female dominated family. Are you surprised to hear that Ira? No, I I grew up in a very female dominated family as well. We like each other. Yeah. So all my aunts and cousins, we all went to Mount Dora and did their antique extravaganza on Friday and then had, you know, dinners and, you know, drinking and games. And it was wonderful. Family is so great if you're lucky enough to live around them. You know, you always tease me about I'm the traveler and you're not, but you seem to be getting away more than I do. I've never been to Mount Dora. I heard it's great. It is. And if you, so I have a disorder called holiday over decorating syndrome, which I think is a cross between, um, loving the holidays and actually being a hoarder. So like an antique fair is like, it's like crack for me. Like I can't, I can't, I can't have any restraint. Did you buy a lot of stuff? I didn't buy a lot of stuff. A lot of the things that I looked for, the vendors weren't there, but I, I'm kind of in a new vibe right now. So that was kind of fun. I bought some new stuff. I made a nice major purchase this weekend. Tell me about it. I bought a piece of art from an upcoming budding young artist collective. It's a combination male and female artist collective that aims to reveal the destruction of our natural environment from advertisements and commercialism. Cool. Yeah, their body of art focuses on the injustices in our society and how the system is broken. And their art is characterized by a black or brown crack, which represents the crack in the system. The name of the collective, Death by Letters. These people are up and coming. I was very impressed. And in each of their pieces, this black crack or brown crack in my piece, is added to the canvas to represent the damaged system that we live in. And, and, and these guys are cool. They, they Where'd ha- you see them? Well, I was at a friend's home, and mm-hmm. it's his daughter. Uh, these artists have a background in the streets of writing graffiti, uh, and several of their works include graffiti letters. Cool. Do they have a website? Uh, they don't yet, but they will soon. The style of their work is a combination of pop art, minimalism, and graffiti. And many of their pieces include familiar animated characters from cartoons that you and I have seen and grown up with, connecting the viewer to the art. No SpongeBob, though. I, I, I've got to get them to do a SpongeBob piece. <laughs> so the artists are Elmus, and she spells that L M U S. She's a female artist from here in South Florida who got a BA degree in visual arts at the University of San Diego. And her partner, Ernie, E R N I, who's a Mexican-American self-taught artist from Los Angeles. These people are great. If you see their art, they're up and coming. It's wonderful. Now you have a rant prepared for I us I have a today. rant prepared. You know Let's what? hear it. 
So, by the way, when you told me you're going to do a rant on this article, I was excited because I had already read the article and felt a little ramped up about it myself. Um, but yeah, so I was. It was interesting that we both kind of saw and were inspired by the same thing. Well, you know, we work hard at what we do, and we really try to take care of our we patients. We as physicians, we as physicians, okay. and you and I as direct primary care physicians in particular, because we're always on, we're always available. Mm -hmm. So the title of the article is "Keep Up the Insults and Good Luck Finding a Physician in Ten Years." What insults? Well, it was written by Karen uh, Sullivan uh, Seibert. Uh, she's a doctor. She's actually an uh, anesthesiologist uh, who writes uh, a column. And I found this. Uh, it was in Kevin MD, right? It, it wasn't Kevin MD, but I found this one. Uh, this was actually published elsewhere, and is published recently, January 17th of 2020, because there have been recent articles in the Washington Post and in the New York Times bashing doctors. And I've got to tell you, Leanne, I'm a little tired of the doctor bashing. Yeah, what was, they were talking about an article in particular that was, what was it talking about, like physician kickback or what was well, the Well, it was talking it? about a doctor mm -hmm. who performed an emergent appendectomy mm -hmm. on a patient. And the insurance company wouldn't pay the bill because they didn't cover that patient right. at the hospital she went to right. emergently. Right, right, right. And see these recent attacks, and I'm going to quote from the article here. In fact, I'm going to actually read a lot from the article. But these recent attacks on physicians by economists, particularly Ann Case and Angus Deaton, and media professional Cynthia Weber-Cassio, deserve to be called out. You know, you can almost make a case for consigning them permanently along with our anti-vaccination zealots to a healthcare-free planet, which, of course, would be supplied with essential oils, mustard poultices, and leeches. And I'm quoting from the article. In fact, I'm reading from the article. And I quote Dr. Seibert as saying, my real quarrel with them and with the Washington Post, which published their comments, is that they have the courage of the non-combatants, the people who criticize but have no idea what it's like to do a physician's work. Ms. Cassia was enraged by the bill from her general surgeon who wasn't in her insurance network at the time she needed to have that emergency appendectomy. She doesn't care, and why would she? that insurance companies increasingly won't negotiate fair contracts. And it isn't the surgeon's fault that the state where this occurred, Maryland, hasn't passed a rational out-of-network payment law like they did in New York, which should be the model for national legislation. Nor does Mrs. Cassio care that Maryland's malpractice insurance rates are high compared with other states, averaging more than $50,000 per year per general surgeon. She just wants to portray her surgeon as a villain. Hey, Leanne, what do you think a surgeon makes for taking out an appendix? What do you think the surgeon actually ends up getting paid? Yikes. Take a guess. I'm going to say a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, it's a couple hundred bucks. I think it's like right at 300 bucks. That's the same as a gallbladder. And see, the two economists who are also quoted in this article, are indignant that American physicians <coughs> make more money than their European colleagues. Oh, well, yeah. 
and and that's a big I think that's a big bone of contention, you know, across the board that it seems like physicians belong in the wealthy, you know, they're they're typically wealthy, they live in the wealthier neighborhoods. I mean, e- even somebody at my age sometimes I'll get quips about, you know, oh, you have a nice house for somebody that's your age. Meanwhile, they don't understand that number 1, I'm still paying off crippling debt. Like crippling, crippling debt. Debt. Like, like, tr- like six figures, like mid six figures. Leaving debt. med school with $260,000 worth of debt. And, and on top of that, having spent the last, whatever, 10, 12 years making a low salary and essentially having not a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> and the other complaint about the economists is how could they charge so much in a procedure that only took 30 minutes oh. or, or less? Yeah. You know, I, I always thought that. Good judgment comes from bad judgment. That comes from experience. You know, if my plane's going down, I want Captain Sully flying my plane. I don't want the stewardess doing it. And to quote from the article again, I wonder sometimes what it would be like to go to work in the mornings and not to have to worry that I might kill someone, says the anesthesiologist who wrote this article. If journalists or economists get their facts or predictions wrong, it's annoying, but it won't be fatal. If anesthesiologists have trouble getting enough oxygen into the patient's airway for very long, permanent brain damage or death results. And that's a stress level that she has. But surgeons, OBGYNs, they have the stress level of puncturing the aorta. Family doctors such as myself and Dr. Leanne here, someone comes in with a cough. It could be a virus. It could be lung cancer. How do you know when to test and when not to test? It's the experience that you're paying for, and it's that education. And let me tell you something, folks out there. What really irritates me and irks me the most are insurance executives. The CEO of this particular insurance company makes $14 million a year. Physicians, all told, take up in our healthcare system, less than 1% of the overall cost of healthcare. See, at one time, and I'm quoting me now, we were the ball players, but we yielded to big business. And now I don't even think we're the peanut vendors. So primary care physicians aren't exempt from fear and stress. A patient comes in, we have to know what to order. If an insurance company will even let us order it. So, so the main, that's my rant for tonight. So the main gist of this article was something that we have alluded to in the past, which is essentially that there is a public uh, discussion happening out there that is anti-physician. And that's really, I mean, it, to me, it kind of comes as a shock because, I mean, I spend all day among people who are really happy to see me and they're so grateful for what I do. And, you know, and it's not just me, it's their other physicians as well. So it's almost like the public portrayal, or maybe it is the younger generations of people that are passing this judgment. But, but I agree that we're seeing more, um, you know, shameless bashing of physicians as a profession. And we contrasted it in a previous episode to the fact that we don't really see the same thing going on with allied health professionals like practitioner, nurse practitioners, PAs, physical therapists, dentists, etc. There's something specific about physicians that's rubbing these people the wrong right. way. And, and I'm not sure you see it going on with the type of medicine that we practice, direct primary care medicine. One, you and I, with what we do, we're totally transparent. It's a membership fee only. And the other way 
that we don't see this is the fact that our patients really know us. It's not like we're here today and going uh, gone tomorrow. So, you know, an interesting perspective on this particular topic might be from our esteemed guest today, right? It, because, it could be. Because who is our guest? Well, our guest tonight is not only an esteemed psychiatrist, but he's a lifelong friend of mine who's now in Hampton, Connecticut. It's Dr. Perry Mandanis. And the cool thing about Dr. Mandanis, he has his own podcast, which is so much, I think, better than our podcast. <laughs> I've listened to his podcast <clears throat> twice now. On his second podcast, I literally had tears in my eyes. Uh, welcome to our show, Dr. Mandanis. Hi, guys. Thanks a lot for having me on. What do you think about his rant? What do you think about what he's saying about this anti-physician mantra going on in the media right now? You know, I think there's an anti-science mantra going on in the media right now. And I think it's been promoted in lots of different arenas, actually. Um, Anti-climate change, anti-vaccines, anti-doctors. You know, people seem to think that their feelings or their beliefs equal, you know, their Google, you know, or their Google search is the same as our education. So it's just not the same thing. And I do think there's a kind of anti-science and doctors are the experts in their field. And so people want to take down the head waiter. They're not going to take down the allied health professionals. And I think that might be why we're getting it directed at us. Um, rather than all the other people. Do you think it also has a lot to do with the fact that that primary relationship between patient and physician is being eroded by the lack of time people are now spending face-to-face with their doctors? In other words, totally. you know, we're, we all have a lot of um, chutzpah in our cars, <laughs> you know, sending signals out the window to other drivers that we'll never meet. But, you know, face-to-face, we, it's, it's a lot more difficult to hurl these insults. And I think people aren't spending that face-to-face time with physicians anymore. So it's a lot easier to make enemies out of them. I agree. Well, one thing about Dr. Mandan is he always has such a positive attitude and he, he brings things back. In fact, his podcast deal with the human condition and how resilience and strength and fortitude and just a good story can sometimes change people's lives. I met Dr. Mandanis when I was about three years old. Our grandmothers grew up, or when they were in their 20s, on the same street. It was that Greek-Jewish connection in Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah. And it was old Columbia, wasn't it, Perry? It was. You know, that, I mean, that, that was a time in the South where there was a lot of discrimination against people who weren't white Southerners. And so Greek people, Jewish people, Syrian people, that neighborhood was full of people of all different ethnicities who were successful business people, had come to the United States to chase the American dream, build a house, raise a family, but got excluded from some of the posh neighborhoods in the city, and they just developed their own. And so, yeah, our grandmothers were three, four houses apart. Three, four houses apart. and I remember your grandmother really well. She used to help me buy my jeans at her store, Molibis downtown. That's great. And, you know, all the Greek families, they had the restaurants, and all the Jewish families had had the retail businesses. And that yeah. generation. And our yeah. generation, we were the doctors and the lawyers. 
it's, it's pretty interesting how our families and meaning your family, my family, uh, put such an emphasis on on education. And so when Perry's mom was a little was a young child and my mother was a young child, they grew up together. And hence Perry and I kind of grew up together. It was kind of a neat three three generation thing. And then I had lost touch with uh, Dr. Mandanis for years. And then due to social media, I found him on Facebook, uh, oh, I'd say about seven, eight years ago, and and we reconnected. Yep. And that was great to track each other down again. I mean, our mothers are best friends. So it, it's sad that, you know, we lost touch. It's really great that we are on again. I agree. So you trained at Brown University after being a pedi- pediatrician. Did you ever practice pediatrics? I didn't. I completed a residency in pediatrics, and then I realized early on that um, was be true. Uh, I could not deal with the fact that children died uh, quite often and quite quickly. I knew that that was not something I was going to be able to do. So I thought I was getting into was you know bouncing babies on your knees, teaching people when it's time to start you know vegetables and fruit, but an earache here and a stomachache here for that. There's another part of pediatrics that um, I didn't think I could do for my whole career. And I realized I enjoyed talking with children and their parents a lot more than studying their diseases. And I quickly morphed my career and took a new direction and came up to Rhode Island to study child psychiatry at Brown University. So that's how I kind of had that path, but I never practiced pediatrics. Did you always want to practice in the Northeast? Because um, I can't really say that, but I'm in the Northeast because it was a comfortable place for me. Um, you know, I, I think I grew up in the South where I think of people as either white or black. And in the Northeast, I kind of I quickly discovered that we up here celebrate diversity perhaps a little bit more loudly than in the South that I grew up in, anyway. And uh, I gravitated to the Northeast mostly because it was a, a social scene that I connected to more closely. So you have quite the story to tell. And you talk about it on your first episode of Couch Stories. But tell our listeners what happened to you just before you went into practice the day before, I believe you were supposed to open your yeah, office. Timing is everything, right? Ira? I mean, yeah. So I had uh, finished four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of pediatrics, two years of child psychiatry, two years of adult and family psychiatry. And it was literally the end of June when it was time for me to finally hang a shingle after all of this education and launched my private practice in child psychiatry. I got an office, I had decorated it, and I had one last thing to do right before I graduated, and that was move the desk into the office. And while I was moving the desk into my office, unfortunately, I missed a step and I fell down really hard and injured my back and my spinal cord. And Unfortunately, even after surgery, they were able to help me some, but uh, some of my spinal cord remained damaged, and I became wheelchair dependent the day before I graduated. 
and have spent the rest of my life in a wheelchair. Um, so that was a weird turn of events that happened right before I was supposed to start my career. And that delayed your opening almost one year to the day because you were one in, year to the day. You were in rehabilitation and, yep. it, and, and you thought you were going to get better and you didn't get better and you had to resolve yourself, as you say in your podcast, that you were going to spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair, which oh, had to easy. no. <laughs> you know, I uh, I tell it by in Couch Stories the first episode when I introduce myself. Um, I talk about the fact that I rented a wheelchair for eleven, well, not quite eleven months, but nine months because I didn't think I was going to need one. And when my physical therapist sort of insisted that I buy a wheelchair, it was then that I realized, uh-oh, um, this is as good as it's going to get. And I got depressed, and I started to pay attention to the nursing station. Because I was a doctor, I could um, steal whatever I needed from the nursing station once I knew when they were going to be away. If I changed my mind about whether or not I was going to be able to do this life in a wheelchair... I could commit suicide. And that was a very, very dark moment in this period of my life. Thankfully, I spoke up. I let somebody know that I was in trouble. Um, the doctor helped me immensely. And um, she was a therapist at a spinal cord injury hospital. So everybody he dealt with was dealing with what I had going on. Everybody was new to being spinal cord injured. Everybody was new to being in a wheelchair. And he told me that people who have had my injury usually end up in one of two groups. In group one are the people who stay mad and angry about it and never really have a good life. And then he called the other people the group two people. Those are people who radically accept what has happened and figure out how to be happy people in wheelchairs. So... Radical acceptance was the first step, and that's uh, that's a tough step. But that's what I talk about in Count Stories and um, in that first episode. And that's really what the whole podcast is about, by the way. It's about resilience and overcoming something that's tough to overcome. And when you think you can't, how do you get through it? I think that um, that's a powerful story for people to hear if they're struggling with something. So you also mentioned in and couch stories that you love to dance and you're no longer able to dance, but you sing and boy, do you sing and you tried out for the voice. I did. I did a tryout for the voice. I, um, I sent them a tape and they, when they, when you send them a tape, they decide if you can audition at the front of the line and I made it to the front of the line and I auditioned two or three times the way they do it, but I got cut before the television show rounds. But it was a fun experience. And I've heard you sing. Do you still have your band? I do. Um, I'm in a band up here. We perform from time to time. It's an R&B band, and we're called Big Jump. So big shout out to my friends in Big Jump. And uh, it's a great thing to do from time to time. Hey, listen. And if you've just joined us, we're talking to uh, Dr. Perry Mandana, psychiatrist from his home in Connecticut. And we're going to need to take a short commercial break. 
right here at WSTU. We'll be right back in just about 60 seconds. So you're you're doing really good. We're about halfway there, and now we're going to talk about your episodes and anything else you want to throw in. You good with that, Perry? Okay. Okay. Yeah. You've been in the same spot this whole time because we are getting a little bit of feedback somehow. Okay. Do you know? Is it me? Sounds like it might be. I'm hearing. Sometimes the orientation of the phone just I'm turning left to right. Sometimes just changes this the way the cell tower picks up the signal too yeah we're hearing some like crackly type noises on i just now heard the crackly noise i thought it was you guys um now it's gone away yes exactly yes now it has okay okay uh and you know uh is there anything else you want to talk about that i didn't send to you or anything you want me to not talk oh, about good I'm, i think we got plenty here okay good yeah. how do you today and leanne you're doing great with the cough so far Thank you. You've really suppressed it well. Thank you. Well, you know, it's sort of like my sneezes. I I sneeze really quietly and people are like, how do you do that? I'm like, this is called a surgical sneeze. And when you are the resident in the room and the scrub tech is finding any reason to make you look like a total, you know, jerk oh, are, are, in front of your totally surgeon. Are we totally off air? YouTube's no. off now too? Mm -hmm. No. Hang on. That doesn't matter. You just if you need to ask if yeah. YouTube is still okay. running, yeah. that should be like your filter for life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Perry, are you surprised to know that Ira's gotten himself in trouble with off-color jokes? Oh no. No. All right. Okay, you ready? Right. On the air. Yeah. Yeah, we're ready. We're gonna partially on the air. Okay, partially on the air. We're gonna. This is a. Uh, let me. Now I've got to reset the timer. Uh, stop. Reset. Whenever you're ready. Yep. Okay. And welcome back. Uh, we're here at Paradox talking to the author and host, the psychiatrist of Couch Stories, Dr. Perry Mandanis. And childhood friend of yours. And childhood friend. And psychiatrist. And psychiatrist and singer. And our very first remote guest. So, you know, oh, thank wow. you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you to our audience for hanging in there because, you know, we, we know that the sound quality isn't quite what you're used to since we usually do these recordings in studio. So I appreciate everybody that's hanging in there. But this is great because I think it could open up a whole new world of interviews if we were able to do, you know, remote podcast interviews on this Paradox show. Absolutely. Yeah. And so... I want to ask you, Perry, yep. uh, what was the idea uh, behind Couch Stories, the concept? Well, you know, I am a psychiatrist with 25, 30 years of experience. And one of the things I learned working with patients over all these years is often a lecture or medical information or you know, data doesn't really resonate with them very much, or they just reject it. And if I can sneak a good story in that causes their brain to itch or makes them see something a new way, 
I learned that story can sometimes be much more powerful than any facts or figures that I can offer people. So in my work with patients, I very often use stories or metaphors to engage them because stories are memorable. You remember the stories, even if you don't remember the medical facts. The stories kind of stick with you. They penetrate, you know? And um, I've been using stories and studying, studying stories and um, it's an important part of my work. So it was a, a natural way for me to morph into um, this podcast. I mean, I am a song and dance fan, like you mentioned. And so putting that part of me together with my experience in medicine and the podcast Couch, Couch Stories emerged. So so give our listeners who haven't listened to your podcast a little bit of an overview. So this... Your, your podcast is called Couch Stories, and what is the general theme? How many episodes have you done? What do you try to focus on? How has sure. this evolved? Okay. So the general theme is going to be telling stories of resilience and grit, telling stories about overcoming a challenge. And I have overcome quite a few of them. And there's going to be two episodes per month. So far, I've only aired two of them, the first two. Um, and then in the future, I'm going to tell more generic teaching stories, the kind of stories that I've shared with lots of people. Uh, the first four stories are all autobiographical because I just want people to get to know me as a real person. And um, then I'm going to begin doing interviews, just like you guys are interviewing me tonight. I'm going to start interviewing authors, uh, other people that have interesting stories of resilience to tell. Because, you know, a lot of people have overcome a major challenge in life. And it's I think it's inspiring to hear how someone overcame that, what they learned from it, what they would share with your listeners about it, what they would do differently. And so Proud Stories is going to be a place for people to share those kinds of stories. And I assume you chose the name because of the psychiatrist couch? Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is yes. funny because that's what I always tell patients are not going to happen. I say, I'm going to send you to see a psychiatrist. They're not going to shrink your head and you are not going to lie on a fainting couch. <laughs> I do have one in my office, though. It's cliche, but I do have a People probably like it, don't they? Well, very few people use it, but it's fun. <laughs> now, I know at one time you were considering retirement in your near future. So would this be a departure from that plan for you or how does that fit into your overall game plan in the future? Um, I'm still young enough to continue to practice medicine for a few more years, but um, I do think this is an opportunity for me to continue to help people um, in a way that I enjoy without having the daily grind of seeing patients in and out all day long. So, yeah, I mean, if Couch Stories takes off, and I hope it does, and I hope your listeners will sign up for Couch Stories. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the OAM Network. Sign up for Couch Stories, because if it takes off, um, I think this might be my retirement plan, you guys, is continue to tell stories, interview other people for their stories, and hopefully help people with stories that aren't just good, but they're good for you. Well, I've listened to both of your episodes now, and they're absolutely brilliant. Uh, if you took it to the next level, what do you think that would be for you? Um, well, my next thing is going to be the interviews. It's quite possible that these episodes may find themselves becoming the individual chapters of a book. 
Um, I've got a team of people that are helping me put this together, and they're amazing young millennials who are really good at this podcast thing that I'm still new at. And they tell me that if I get a book out, that maybe I can do some speaking engagements. And, you know, who knows where this is going to go? So I'm totally open to it. So, you know, we off, I'm on a, I'm on a network of a Facebook, a Facebook group that is composed, uh, comprised of women physicians. And, uh, one of the things that will come up from time to time, uh, is how, uh, corporate medicine often encourages us to remove personal artifacts from the rooms that we, you know, examine patients in. And so typically this kind of leads to a more general conversation about, uh, how, up close and personal do each of us get with our patients? And it's very cute because typically what will happen is the responders to these types of um, posts will fall into two groups, one being uh, the group of people that I think are more hurried or have to get through their workday uh, more quickly, maybe surgeons and the like who don't necessarily need to develop a deep personal relationship with patients. So they, they will say things about how they try to protect their privacy or their children's privacy. They try not to share personal stories. But then the entire other half of the group would be people like Ira and myself, and it sounds like definitely this would be you, who feel like the entire relationship is built upon sharing your story and that patients are able, when patients are able to open up and relate to the person that they're speaking to, you you can get where you need to go so much more quickly. And so in one of our previous guests, we had Dr. Monica Munoz, who was a um, his. She's an endocrinologist, and she mentioned kind of midway through her uh, pod the podcast interview that she herself was a diabetic. And it's like I can only imagine how that would be so helpful when you spend all day speaking to diabetic patients. And so, but, you know, but I bet very few of her patients know that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, if we had more time on the show, I I think I thought it was interesting that it didn't come up until later. And so I was just thinking about your circumstance and how, you know, the wheelchair is one of those things that you cannot hide, right? So a lot of, you know, so Dr. Monica can hide her insulin pump and the other of us who might have a disability or any other kind of, you know, personal story that may or may not be relevant that we can kind of conceal that. But I would imagine that the wheelchair uh, and in one aspect, I think potentially people might feel the wheelchair makes them vulnerable, but I would think that for you potentially it might make you feel powerful because it gives you that open door to just connect with people deeply from the beginning. Do you feel like that? I totally do, Leanne. I believe that being fully present with in terms of who I am in this wheelchair, this is who I am. Um, I have not before shared personal stories quite as personal as the ones I'm sharing on couch stories with my patients. So I had to kind of prepare them all that, that I was going to do that actually, uh, because I worried quite a bit about what it was going to be like for them to learn so much about me. Tell me why, but, tell me why, because you know, this is, well, again, this is because the, because uh, the rules. It's the rules. Yeah. Medicine, just like you talked about, you know, where your office is supposed to be neutral. You're not supposed to have photographs of your kids and blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's a school of thought that kind of comes out of the analytic school in psychiatry anyway. But I think that, you know, interpersonal therapists are a lot more present um, and a lot more likely to share something real with the person. And that only helps us make a stronger connection with our patients. And the, But the wheelchair, I have to say, has cut both ways. Sometimes people 
feel like they can't complain to me Ooh. about something trivial because after all, you know, I've got this big thing happen. And then other times people will say like, well, you don't understand. And I just have to tap on the wheels with my ring and say, you know, well, I actually think I do understand. Right. And that opens, that opens the door for them to begin to, you know, tell me what their frustration is and tell me what's going on. And I think that helps them feel understood. And that's the most important part of therapy. My job is not to understand the patient. My job is to help the patient leave my meetings with them feeling understood. And I think that's what happens when you are real with someone. Yeah. And you know, those rules that you just mentioned are are very interesting because Ira, you actually surprised me in a previous podcast. We were talking about religion and medicine. And I think you had said something about your religion and how you, you specifically try to not discuss your religion because you felt like you didn't want that to be a barrier for people that they felt. You, I don't, I don't know where you were going with that. I, I will discuss my religion with my patients, but I don't project my feelings about mm-hmm. my religion uh, on my patients, particularly when it comes to medication usage, uh, vaccination, uh, abortion, because my job is to help the patient get better, not to project my beliefs onto them. They need to formulate their own beliefs Mm -hmm. and I need to support them with what they believe in and help them work through that process. I imagine I, I believe that's what I said on that episode. Yeah, and I, I think it was too. And I and I imagine that in psychiatry if it's not, that's what I'm saying now. Got it. Okay. I imagine that in psychiatry you have to pay you have to be very careful about those rules because I'm sure that, you know, that fear about projecting judgment and whatnot is even stronger um in your particular uh arena than it would be in ours. But you know, it's funny because I'm not talking to somebody about their pancreas. Right. I'm not talking to somebody about their liver. I'm often talking to somebody about their personality or their thoughts or their feelings. And so it's much, you know, all, we personalize that, that, that information. We don't personalize our liver, even though it's pretty damn important. You know, it's, it's a very different kind of medicine. Right. I, I always went with the theory that liver's not the brain, but it's not stupid. Uh, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's not the brain. So would it be a spoiler alert if I delved a little bit, dove a little bit into episode two, uh, because I thought as powerful as your first episode was, okay, listeners, you've got to listen to count stories tonight, powerful stories. But episode two was even, I mean, literally I was on the treadmill when I listened to that story, uh, Dr. Mandanis, I had tears in my eyes. I almost slipped off the treadmill and it was so powerful how you brought your life story, which was similar to the gentleman on the bridge, mm-hmm. and how had you not told him that story, you would have not had you would have not connected with him. It was a crazy thing. I mean, so the story you're referencing is about a suicide attempt, um, and I mean, if I can back up a little bit. You know, because I'm a psychiatrist, one of the things I do is study a lot about suicide. And uh, one of the things I studied was about children whose parents survive a suicide, excuse me, children who survive their parents' suicide. And I decided to study that topic. 
And I presented grand rounds about, you know, what happens when a parent kills themselves. And about four days after my grand rounds presentation, my father killed himself. And I became one of these people that I had studied for years and years and years and years. And I intellectualized it. I was an academic. I knew exactly what was going on. I didn't have any emotions. And then, lo and behold, one day, to fast forward a little bit, I was working in an emergency room in Massachusetts, and I met this guy and his wife, and he was crying, he was depressed, but he promised he wasn't suicidal and they weren't going to act on his thoughts. And um, I hear that cracking. Sorry about you, about you guys. Um, I We let him go home because he promised to be safe. And on my drive home from work that night, there he was about to jump off a bridge. And I stopped and picked him up and convinced him not to do it. And the way that I convinced him not to do it after I tried everything and was running out of ideas was to tell him about my father's suicide. And that story changed his life and changed mine because after I told him the story, I wept and wept and wept and realized just how artificial I had been, how closed off I had been, how defended I had been. And um, that day, the story helped him and the story helped me. And that's what the second episode's about. Now, that was years ago. And certainly psychiatry has changed in this country since that time. Mm -hmm. As we see more and more pharmaceuticals brought into psychiatry, less and less hour-long visits with psychiatrists, particularly in large institutions, more and more mid-level providers. Psychiatry is almost the mill that primary care medicine is. Where do you see the future of psychiatry in this country going? Well, you know, I'm scared to death. Your rant at the beginning of the episode tonight um, made me think that. We've become so reductionistic, and it's all about science, it's all about meds. We sort of lost the art of a connection with the patient. And in my experience, it's a biopsychosocial treatment. The biology is the medicines, but the psychology is getting to know what the person is thinking, and the sociology is understanding how they relate to other people and how they relate to their communities and how they relate to themselves. Unless you have some time, to put together a biopsychosocial treatment plan, you're missing two-thirds of the treatment plan. And medicines can only take people so far. Um, that's a big part of couch stories. I think that a good story is what could really make the difference. Um, so I'm really worried about the future of psychiatry in that regard. Child psychiatry, on the other hand, uh, we still do a lot of therapy. Uh, we joke among ourselves that we are the most fully trained of psychiatrists because we study therapy of the family, therapy of the child, therapy of the adult, and that, thankfully, is still a big part of child psychiatry. But uh, the the advent of easy-to-prescribe, low-side-effect medications has changed the face of psychiatry, and the truth is those medicines are not prescribed mostly by psychiatrists. Most of those medicines are prescribed by primary care physicians. You know, that's interesting. And you and I spoke uh, this morning also about the need for the, that resilience, that grit, that struggle, that overcoming conflict. 
helps people grow. And absolutely. And and you it but, makes them it makes them smarter too. You know, I can't tell you how many times I work with a teenager who complains to me about how hard chemistry is. I hate chemistry, chemistry so hard. And the only way that I can convince them if they're a historian or if they, you know, plan on being an English major to continue to struggle with chemistry is to help them understand how struggling with chemistry, even if they're never going to do it again, is going to help their brain be smarter for all the other things they really do care about. Do you find that our current youth, uh, millennials up to the present, aren't allowed to struggle enough and they aren't allowed to develop enough conflict because mom and dad uh, tend to get in the way because they want their kids to have it easier than they did. But yet when that happens, they can't handle the situation that isn't perfect, so to speak. Well, I think that's true for a certain group of people, and I have to say those are the privileged people. I think the people who aren't so privileged continue to struggle quite a bit and learn from their struggles and develop a lot of resilience and grit. I mean, I only think of resilience as an unusual thing in human beings. I actually think it's common. Um, Our desire to survive and to overcome is so strong, most of us are able to figure it out. But among privileged kids, I think you're right. They have, uh, it's one of the casualties of privilege to not have the skills from early childhood for dealing with a situation that's frustrating, for dealing with a situation that's difficult, because they, most of, you know, privileged kids don't. Their parent can prevent it from happening and buy them what they want. And they don't experience a whole lot of frustration until they get to be teenagers and young adults. And lo and behold, mom and dad can no longer prevent them from experiencing frustration. And at that point in life, they haven't developed the skills yet to deal with it. And so that's what I see a lot of. How do we change that? Let kids struggle. Let kids fall. Let kids figure it out. Stop running in and rescuing them. I mean, imagine what our world would be like if little kids who are learning to walk. I mean, you know, you know how that is. When a little kid learns to walk, what do they do? They pull themselves up, they take a few steps, and then they fall. They don't quit. They don't say, you know, I've tried this walking thing, and it didn't work out for me. I think I'm going to sit right here and wait for somebody to pick me up. No, little kids don't have fear. They want to walk like everybody else. So they get up and they try again and they get up and they try again until they master it. Imagine what our world would be like if we picked those kids up the first time they fell and carried them. They would get to be pretty big in our arms and never learn to walk. So I really do think that one of the most important skills of being an excellent parent is to just let go and watch your kids and trust your kids and comfort them when they struggle, but not necessarily characterize the struggle as bad or, uh, or take the struggle away. You know, just because the teacher is assigning a difficult assignment to you doesn't mean she's a bad teacher. Um, I think that would be an important start. I think that's excellent advice for all of our listeners and for society in general. 
Can you give us a glimpse into future episodes? I mean, we, we, I've listened to episode one. I've listened to episode two. What can okay. we look forward to? Well, uh, the next two episodes are going to be the last of my autobiographical episodes. Uh, I don't want couch stories to be, you know, the Perry Mandanus memoirs, but I do want people to get to know me as a real person. And so the first four episodes, I'm telling some very personal stories. Um, the next one is actually about the grandmother that you know, Ira. Um, if I can quickly give you a sneak peek, uh, this woman arrived into the United States at Ellis Island with her family to join their father who came years before them to establish a business as a restaurant and earn enough money to build a house, furnish it, and call for his family to come over. And the day they arrived in Ellis Island, the Red Cross pulled them aside from all the other immigrants that had just gotten off the ship and let them know that their father had been murdered that day or rather the day before, the dishwasher in his restaurant killed him the day before his family arrived. Wow. That's the beginning of her story and how resilient she became. And so that's episode three. Um, episode four is going to air on Valentine's Day, so it's going to be about love. And then I'm going to begin doing interviews of some very interesting characters and people, authors who have written books about story and storytelling, um, a woman who, another author who um, has overcome a major medical life struggle herself, um, the headmaster of a, of a local high school who is going to talk with us about exactly what we just finished talking about, which is, you know, resilience in our young people and how to help them build it and what he's doing with his curriculum to do that. So I'm moving into the interviews uh, once people get to know me as a person. That's great. That's what's up next. I cannot wait to hear both of those episodes. You know, I can definitely see Couch Stories as a book, perhaps, as we said earlier, Couch Stories on a coffee table. I think mm -hmm. uh, that would be great. And and you could maybe water it down, perhaps maybe put some of the Couch Stories on decaffeinated coffee tables. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we, didn't uh, have, we have like a minimum yeah, amount have, of puns. Yeah, we have a minimum amount of puns right. on the yeah. show, okay. just, <laughs> just to keep the audience <laughs> listening. But Dr. <laughs> Mandanis, you have been an incredible guest on our show this week. Thank you. Uh, we'd love to have you back after the next couple episodes, talk to you again. I can't wait to come up and see you. We need to get together again soon. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And for those Thank of you, you out Anna. there, Thank you, Ira. tune yeah, in next you week here, right here at WSDU or listen to our some podcast on Podbean or on iTunes. We're here at Paradox. Good, good day, Leanne. Good day. <laughs>